Welcome to Trollblack TV, where we feature the world's most extreme athletes. In our last podcast, we featured the men in the world's most dangerous race. This time around, we're featuring the world's fastest women, Mayan Smith-Gobat and Libby Sauter, along with three very special guests. Hazel Finley, who many suspect will be entering the race. You're in for a surprise. Joseph McKee, who's being hailed as a hero, along with Yosemite's search and rescue team, for saving Quinn Brett's life after Quinn took the most horrific fall while gunning up the nose. And Quinn Brett herself, who after months of rehab and physical therapy is finally able to stand. So don't go anywhere. You're in for a treat. For those just joining our show who know very little about the women's race up the Noseville Cap, undoubtedly one of the most predominant landmarks on the planet, just know there aren't any rules, so to speak other than the time officially begins when the first person's foot leaves the ground and ends when the last member of the party touches the tree. Anything goes. You can grab slings, pull on cams, or pitons. You can basically do whatever it takes to make the ascent in the shortest amount of time, including running out with no gear or sama climbing with just a few pieces in between. Don't worry. If you don't know what all that means, you'll be hearing from the ladies as they describe the most dangerous techniques, including what's known as the death loop, in incredible detail. As a disclaimer, we at Triple Black are not endorsing or recommending that you incorporate these techniques in your climbing practice. This show is strictly for entertainment and education purpose. So please think twice, if not three times before entering this race. The danger couldn't be more real, especially with this tragic accident surrounding Quinn Brett. Which leads to the question, why are women participating in this race? Especially since nobody is offering a cash prize or a trophy or a gold medal. Is it just to lure the record, to prove, as Lynn Hill did, that women are capable of climbing as fast, if not faster, than the men? Or is it to lure the adventure to see what is humanly possible? I'll let you be the judge of that. But before we begin, I think it's only appropriate that we give you a brief history of the women's race. Although not as heated as the men, it's quickly picking up steam as more and more women enter the race. It began in 2004 with Heidi Wurst and Vera Pulkum. They set the record at 12 hours and 15 minutes. That record held into 2011, when Libby Sauter, who we'll be hearing from shortly, and Chatel Astorga shattered the record by nearly two hours, setting a new time of 10 hours and 40 minutes, nearly, but not quite, matching the time of the late Sean Backer and the legendary Peter Croft. I'm not sure what happened, but from that point on, the women race was on. The following year in 2012, Jess Merez and Quinn Brett, who we'll be hearing about shortly, Shay's Sauter's time by 21 minutes. Three months later in the same year, Maya Smith-Gobat entered the scene. She shared the record by nearly three hours, dropping the women's time to seven hours and 26 minutes, beating the record that had been established by the legendary Hans Florian and Steve Schneider back in 1990. But as you hear, Maya and Gobat was just getting warmed up. The following year, she teamed up with Libby Sauter, who will be on deck after Maya, by shaving nearly two hours off their previous record. Their time, five hours and 39 minutes. Many believed they would stop there, but Mayan and Libby had bigger ambitions. They had their eyes set on breaking the five hour mark and they achieved this incredible milestone in October 2014 by charging up the nose in four hours and 43 minutes. How did they do it? What risk are they willing to take? Who do you think is capable of breaking the record? It's all coming up next with Josie McCabe who shared her most horrific experience belaying and saving Quinn Brett's life. I'll start off by asking Mayan, 
when did the speed record for the nose become an obsession? I'm not, yeah, I mean, I never, definitely never as fanatical about it as as a lot of the guys have been. Um, I think it was 2011, I climbed the Salisay, and then did the week after did Freerider in a day. And which, which, by the way, I mean, I one of my favorite videos of all time happens to be you on the Salisay doing the headband. <laughs> Thanks. That, that yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people actually, and it's cool because it was really like very little editing. It was, it was shot, and yeah, yeah. But absolutely amazing. I mean, I've seen some pictures and some footage, but nothing shot like that. And, and you just. You fired up that thing. Um, it was just beautiful technique, and your the way you described life in general and why you climb and the the, the actual crack itself and and everything was just brilliant. I recommend anyone who's listening to this you got to watch the video. It's amazing. So back to what you were saying about. Um, yeah, so climbed freerider and like shortly after the Salisay and did that and I think it was just over 14 hours with Niels Tietze actually who just who also just passed away um, and it was just after shortly after that when I was kind of like those were the pretty big goals and I was almost like a little lost after that and was talking to Libby and Chantal in the meadow at some point and that's and I didn't even really thought of the speed record until Libby mentioned that it was at that point still 12 hours and that's when we realized that like if I can free climb the Salisay and not much over that time like we can definitely break that and it also to me felt a little bit just the difference was just too big between males and females I mean at that point males had already done it in under three hours and yeah didn't even feel like 12 hours was a speed record as such to me for me, it was a lot of a curiosity thing. Like, I couldn't imagine how it's even possible to climb a 1,000 metres in three hours or less than three hours. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to be able to understand it. Well, now that you've climbed it in four hours and 43 minutes, are you, like, thinking of ways of how you can get it down to a three-hour mark? Um, Libby and I did talk about going back to it. And but that was right. It was not long before Gwyn's accident, and I think since then we're both kind of. I mean, I've had a few I, at the same time as I was trying it with her. I also climbed it with Sean Leary, and we were actually gunning or aiming for trying to break the overall speed record. Um, we got it down to three and a half without without really pushing too hard. But in one of those instances, we've had a pretty close call where he almost slipped off um, while we were simling near the top and where I was in a place where it, it would have been really bad for both of us, for sure. Well, there's been a lot of climbers who have taken some falls, not a lot, lot, but uh, some very famous climber like uh, Louise Stick, uh, even one of the Uber brothers got injured as well. Yeah. So, um, that's that's just trying to crack the three hour barrier. Yeah, 
yeah, and definitely the faster you go, there's the more the risks or the bigger the risks get, like just the more chance of just something small going wrong. And in most cases, there are some places where you can make a mistake and it wouldn't be too bad, but there's a lot of places where it just just wouldn't be good. And to be honest right now, that's I don't think I'll be going back anytime soon. Um, just other things that are more important to me. Do you think, looking back on now, I know you're having second thoughts about going back up there for the record, but do you think there's a point where women will start to be able to compete head-to-head with men in terms of their times? I think they would be able to if they wanted to, for sure. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if I put some time into it, I'd be able to get it to around three hours. I think the one thing that would or that is really would stand in the way or does stand in the way maybe is the risk factor and that there aren't as many females who are or barely any females who are really willing to take that level of risk. Why do you think that is? Not really sure. Don't don't know about that. <laughs> I asked Libby Sauter, Mayan's climbing partner, the same question. And here's what she had to say. The thing is, though, is that it's 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 not just that we need to realize it's it's that we have cultural and social programming that don't put us as commonly in the positions to tackle those kinds of endeavors. We just it, it's you know it's these subtle latent gender biases and roles that we are impregnated with when we are taught as young girls that the words that get used for us are pretty and quiet, whereas boys are rough and tumble and strong. And, like, it, it has this lasting imprint, and it's only really just now I think we're starting to see generations of girls being raised where we're really conscious of the language that we use, and words matter in terms of what um, what people think of themselves and sort of think is possible or impossible. Words do matter, and I'm, I was picked up on that because <clears throat> I tell people, you know, what you think you know, it's the words that you use actually like programs your brain into thinking a certain way. And I'm just curious, what kind of words do you use to shape your world? Oh, and I mean, I think, you know, I was raised by a very strong single mother who, you know, was very specific about not, you know, very careful with her language on how she talked to me versus my brother kind of thing and using similar terms. Um, and it was like we sort of started to say yesterday and that I, I believe that what I've done is more a result of, you know, determination, willpower, and desire than any sort of inherent talent. Um, it, it really is, as much as words matter, belief in an open-ended possibility matter. So that if you sort of think, I'm going to try this and I don't know what the outcome's going to be, you're much more likely to be successful than if you say, oh, that's really big, that's really hard, I don't think I can do it. Just being being open-ended is what breeds success. Yeah, you know, I look back on this, you know, going back to 2014, I know I was just going, stepping back here, but October was just one major month for you. It's just, you know, looking back on this going, 1018, you and Quinn climbed two El Cap wraps back-to-back, um, setting a new bar for women that, as far as I know, no one's done that 
to this day. Um, no, hasn't been what, repeated yet. Yeah, what what inspired that? Um, I I mean, you're just you're in the valley, and the valley is this incredible combination of pissing contests and just I like a cesspool of ideas in, in a good way in that everybody is talking about what's bigger and better and what else can be done to just complete uh, the next challenge. And so there always, there were lots of people talking about doing two LCAP routes in a day, doing the link up. I had already done the LCAP half dome link up. So it's just sort of the next progression is to try and do two LCAP routes in a day. And Quinn was someone who, I at least I really respected. I didn't actually didn't know her that well when we did that at all. That was how we met, basically. Um, and I think we both sort of just tackle things with the same open-endedness. We we try really hard not to have arrogance because that is dangerous. But there is an element of that when you're young, obviously. Um, but it, it's just that that open-endedness to possibility is sort of a I'm gonna go see. Like why not? Versus, I don't think I can. So you, up to that point, you and Quinn really hadn't been climbing together. No, not at all. We had met briefly in the Starcash years prior. Um, I didn't remember meeting her. And I broke my leg in 2012, and she emailed me just sort of, a, hey, I hope you're doing okay. We should climb together when you get better. And I can't remember who initiated contact about that goal. But it just sort of... I was like, oh, we should do this. Okay. And I met her at her campsite, and we went and climbed adult one day. The next day, we climbed lurking fear in a day. And then two days later, we climbed two cat routes in a day together. That's just so amazing. I mean, what's really amazing about it, like, look at the time that you gals set in eight hours and 25 minutes to do the nose. And you hadn't, at that point, hadn't done it together before. Yep. Yeah, we climbed, you know, we climbed adult. Exactly. So... To join that kind of time when I'm thinking back on the men's record years ago, um, just to crack the, the 10 hour mark. Wow, holy cow! I mean, that's just a it really is amazing. And just trying to think of what was a turning point for you to think about start breaking the record for the note. Oh, well, there wasn't a turning point, there was like a jumped off a cliff with that because that started back in 2009 at the end of my first stitch and rescue season when you know I think I had climbed. I don't even know if I'd climbed El Cap yet. And one of the guys on the search and rescue team said, you know, the women's speed record on the nose is 12 hours and 15 seconds. Or, sorry, 12 hours and 15 minutes. And I was like, oh, I could do that. He's like, yeah, I got a partner for you. And he'd hooked me up with a friend of his that he thought was going to be on the team next year. Um, and we just started talking about it. I had no reason to think that it was something that I could do. But it just seemed so silly that there was such a disparity between the men's and the women's time that it felt doable. So we went after it. And eventually yeah, did it did, with a different partner. Yeah, wasn't that uh, Chantel? Yeah. I initially started trying with another woman from Yosar named Althea. Um, but we didn't – we tried twice and just had a series of difficulties as you do on big walls, because we ran out of water, we had a 100-plus day, we systems, we were both so new to that style of climbing that 
we just did not we did well we did a 15 hour time and a 17 hour time but not um anywhere close to what we needed yeah now tell us a little bit about what it takes to break the record like there's so many technical things that you have to do I and mean, a lot of people who haven't even been on the nose you know they just look up the wall and just go oh my god and then even people who have done it um to climb the nose in just a day is amazing um so to start cranking down the times as much as you have, what did it take for you to work with Maya to be able to get the time that you did at 443? Um, I mean, there, there's obviously an element of fitness. And I had just been spending, you know, I was in my, by the time mine and I, when did we do it, 2014? You know, I started living in the Valley in 2009. And so there is, there is a Valley fitness that is a very real thing when you live there. You live and work there. You just—it's no big deal to hike to the top of the Falls Trail in the morning, carry somebody out in a litter that's you know broken their leg or something, and then you go do some ten pitch rock climb that normally people wake up before dawn to go do. Like there's just there's this really intense valley fitness that you get from living there. Um, and then it's just breaking it down pitch by pitch. When you look at the nose, move by move, it's not that difficult. There are a couple of tricky sections, some thin nutting or cam hooking. But if you cannot let yourself be overwhelmed by the size, you can really easily um, just do it one pitch at a time. A lot of the pitches are 5'10". It's no big deal. You know, single pitch of 5'10". Not anybody can do that. So if you just think about it like that. Yeah, so true. Um, do you think that uh, we're going to see women crack the three-hour barrier? Oh, yeah. It's just a matter of time. I mean, there are women out there right now that are capable of it. I am not a very good rock climber comparatively. You know, like, I could climb, I could free climb Valley 512 typically with a couple of goes. You know, easy 512. Like, I'm not a talented rock climber. You get two people who are capable of mine, two, two women that can climb 513, 514, they could have it down in a couple of tries. You know, if Hazel Finley and Emily Harrington wanted to get together and do it, or Madeline Sorkin and um, that that Barbara woman that's just crushing all the free cons on El Cap, it'd be no big deal for them to break to break to break four and to get around three and a half. I think is I won't say easy, but like very reasonable if you are a 513-514 rock climber that knows the route. Since I had a direct line to Hazel Finley, who came onto my radar screen when she captured the third ascent shortly after Alex Hummel, of my 1983 test piece in Quartier State Park in northern Maine on a rock called Maniac, I thought I'd ask if she had any intention of going for the rest. Just curious, you know, since you have reclimbed four El Cap routes, something that no other woman's ever done, um, do you have your sights on the record? I don't really know. It's not something that's been in my mind as kind of an ambition. I'm not the fastest of climbers. I think anyone who thought of me hasn't seen me climb because I'm pretty slow. Um, it's not to say I couldn't train and kind of like do an okay job at it, but I'm, it's also, it's not super inspiring to me because uh, I'm kind of most inspired by climbing 
new things and different moves that are difficult. And I think to just keep trying the same thing with the hope of doing it quicker is, is just not as inspiring to me as trying a new route on a different part of the world. I totally get it. You know, Lynn Hill said something very similar to that. Um, so do you have your sights maybe on free climbing the nose instead? Yeah, I mean, I never thought about it seriously, to be honest. But um, I do want to try a harder route on El Cap. And I've climbed the nose. I did it in like 10 hours or something. Um, and it was, it was fun. Um, but as, as kind of a big project, because it would be a really big project for me, I'd not decided yet as whether that would be the best choice just because a few reasons. One is that it's really busy. Two is that it's quite manufactured. So aside from all of the kind of wear and tear from thousands of people age climbing it, it's also got a pitch that's chipped on it, the uh, Ray Jardine chipped, chipped pitch. Um, so I, I don't know if it's the most beautiful route to pick out of the harder routes on El Cap, um, but it's the history. The history is really cool. Um, and the line that you can see from the meadow is really cool. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe one day. Um, one day. But it's not. It's not. It's not like some goal that I'm, I'm training for for this year. I think. Well, there you have it. Hazel Finley, understandably, will not be throwing her beanie into rain. Return to my conversation with Libby. I want to explore the dangers of speed climbing the nose a bit further. What pitches did you think that uh, were the most dangerous for you? Um, in terms of speed climbing. Oh. Because you're, you're doing a lot of simul climbing too, right? Yeah. You know, it depends on who I climb it with. The way mine and I did it, we simul climb the first 16. So we simul climb me to the top of the boot. Um, and so as, so I lead those 16 pitches because mine is stronger than me. You put the stronger person on the bottom when you're simul climbing. Um, the first four pitches are always scary because they all have ledge ball potential and you're running it out so much. You know, I think the first pitch is like 160 feet and I leave three or four pieces of gear, something like that. Um, and there are tricky sections on all of those pitches, those first four. And, you know, if we'd had a local crusher gal take a really bad fall on the second pitch before and... I always felt really intimidated by that second pitch. There's a funny little nut move that you have to do then to an offset cam or to like 510 pin scar free climbing that's really insecure. And I always found that to be really, really stressful. Um, but obviously like the fall that Quinn took was something that I'd always looked at when you're up there because it is such a huge loop of slack that you have because the last thing you leave clipped is the last bolt on the bolt ladder and then you do some fairly difficult for the nose aid climbing and then it's just beautiful 510 hands for 80 feet but you're just looking at this huge fall into this giant flake that I think most folks had always assumed was an unsurvivable fall so would that weigh in your mind when you're doing those sections it would depend. I sort of had this funny, 
like bell curve with the nose. Like in the beginning, I was really stressed out and it felt really dangerous. And in the middle, it started to feel really easy and really casual and just, you know, we just run up the nose, no big deal. Like we did it like four times in seven days or something, maybe nine days. Um, and it just wasn't a big deal. And then I think as we really started to pare down what we were using and how much we were simul climbing and where we were, would sometimes have just a single locking, a single non-locking carabiner clipped to a piton between us. Wow. Um, the stress would start to build up again, you know, and it's, it's not a smart or safe style of climbing. You know, I think Brad Gilbright, when he, after he did it, he said it was the most dangerous thing he's ever done. And we're not even taking half the risk they are. I think our rack is twice the size of theirs. It's, yeah. yeah. No, there's, there's a lot of risk. And it's, well, I think what compounds it, the fact that you're climbing with speed and you're not stopping at each belay station to rest. You just keep going. Especially for Mayan, she wouldn't, like, she, it was a struggle for her to eat and drink anything the entire time. So, and we're four hours. But because she's simul-climbing behind me the whole time and then she's leading the whole time, at least we, I would jumar the upper section, so I often would have, like, two minutes out of belay before she finished the pitch so I could shove in a drink or something. But you're just panting so hard you feel like you're going to puke anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I keep hearing about uh, the death loop, and I was asking Ryan about that. Um, tell us more about that. Um. I mean, it gets called the Pakistani death loop. I don't, it's probably not very PC. There's not a real clear idea on where it came from. There's, I know, some valley rumor of a, of a Pakistani team that took a really big fall on it. And that's where the name came from. Um, but you're, I mean, you get up to an anchor, you pull up a loop of slack and you pull up as much as, as much distance as you think you're going to need until your partner can get to the belay to put you either back on belay or to release the knot. So typically you pull up between 80 to 100 feet and you just tie the knot, tie a knot and clip it to a carabiner. And whether you do a close hitch or a figure eight on a bite, it's a personal, personal thing. Um, and you just climb. And the only thing you're attached to is the anchor and then you're clipped through anything, any gear that you leave. But typically, if you're on, if you're running a PDL, you're not going to be leaving very much gear. Yeah, your, much partner, your partner's just jugging up behind you, right? They're jugging up behind you, but they're fixed on the other side, so they're not. They're so if you look at, and this is something I remember really struggling with when, like, 2009, asking my boyfriend to explain to me, I'm like, I just don't understand short fixing. What is this? So you have the leader has their rope. They're tied in like normal. They're on the first pitch of the nose, and you're being belayed like normal. You go up, you climb your pitch, you get to the anchor, you call off belay, you pull up about 80 feet of slack, you tie a figure eight on a bite, and you clip it to a non-locking carabiner. And typically you tie two so that they're jumaring on one, and you're, and so then the line is fixed. The person on the bottom can jumar and you won't feel them pulling through. And then you do like a clove hitch, another figure eight on a bite to another bolt or a piece of gear. And that's all, that's what you're tied to. And then you just start climbing and it's this knot. It goes from your harness to this 80 foot loop of slack to the anchor to a knot to another knot quite close by and then down to your partner that's jumaring up the rope. Wow. So if you should fall, 
you're going to take that 80-foot fall. Well, 80-foot rope, which be, could be 160 foot. Potentially be 160-foot fall, which is how Quinn went so big on the nose, on, on, on the Booth Lake. Like her, when she fell, she probably had, she probably even had more out. She probably had closer to 100 feet out because it's such an easy, easy pitch. And so she, you know, we don't know exactly how far she fell. We don't know exactly where she was, but there's potential that her fall was up to 160 feet. And the rope never came tight. Oh, God. I tell you, that's everybody's yeah. worst nightmare to have something like that happen. I, it's nauseating to think of what Josie saw as she watched Quinn go by. Unfortunately, Quinn doesn't remember it. Um, but yeah. Josie sure does. Does that affect you in terms of thinking about going back to try to break your own record? Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's it's been a wild and awful fall. Um, you know, there's been a number of deaths, a number of, you know, Quinn's really bad accidents. And just having one of my closest friends and most talented climbers that nobody's ever heard of die in a repelling accident. And to have Quinn, who's one of the most talented and capable female climbers out there, have this accident... It completely changes what how you look at it. Like the risk is no longer hypothetical. It's I, real. I spent five weeks at her hospital, like at her bedside, taking care of her, watching the very real risks be lived. Unfortunately, they were lived, but it definitely makes some like ephemeral records seem pretty silly wow i can't imagine what it must have been like to be quinn's climbing partner i figured the best way of finding out was by reaching out to josie mckee who's been hailed as a hero by everyone in the climbing community for saving quinn's life well take us back to that day you were climbing those with quinn um mm-hmm. what happened so the tactic that most of the folks that are really speed climbing on the nose um, have done for cutting some time off is basically climbing the entire boot flake pitch, back cleaning all your gear so that the second can do the king swing without any gear in the way. Because um, normally the leader would have to lower back down and clean all the gear and then swing over. Um, and so she had back cleaned the entire boot, um, and then I would have swung over and then back cleaned the entire next pitch so that she could just lower out, and then we would both be in the same place, like three pitches further up without having to go up and down a bunch. Um, so she was up at the top of the booth. She was out of my sight. I, so I don't know, and she doesn't remember what exactly happened. Um, but she didn't have any gear. And whether she was free climbing and slipped, or she might have had a cam in and pulled on it, and that came out. Um, because sometimes there's a couple moves up there that are slippery, and she might very well have been mixed aid in free climbing or she might have just been free climbing um her memory of that event as well as 
like the impact and the maybe five or ten minutes afterward is pretty much blank. Uh, so she, I was down at the anchor um, at the top of Texas Lake. I don't know how familiar you are with the route, but there's a bolt ladder there that kind of goes up around the corner, and I was getting ready to start climbing the bolt ladder, which was just like simuling behind her, basically. And I heard her yell uh, and looked over just to see her free-falling. So, you know, completely vertical wall with no gear for over 100 feet. And it impacted the flake behind, or like below and behind me. Um, So she was about 30 feet below me. And that, like, seeing that free-fall... I don't remember exactly what my thought process was, but I was pretty sure it could have been fatal. Like, I didn't necessarily expect her to be alive. Um, And she was completely unconscious as I yelled at her for the next, like, maybe minute that it took me to fix the rope and rappel down. Um, It was pretty quick. But it it was one of those just step into response modes um, trying to get rid of all the emotion and just go and I remember clearly thinking like okay go slow and steady like double checked my systems because all of my emotions were running and like wanted to just like be with her as fast as possible Um, but uh, you know I double checked that the rope was fixed solidly on the anchor and that my Grigory was loaded properly and all clipped in and locked to my harness and lowered down to her. I mean, it was all in a matter of seconds because I've loaded my Grigory onto a fixed line a million times so I can do it quick, but I do remember deliberately double-checking everything because I didn't want to make another victim up there. Uh... So I got down to her, and um, she, I, I, like, yelled her name as I was repelling a couple times. I heard her groan, like, right as I got to her, and then she seemed like she was kind of gasping, like, not really breathing well. So that's the first thing to do is make sure she's breathing and then stop the bleeding. And luckily she wasn't bleeding too badly, but with those couple things taken care of I set my phone down on speakerphone and just called search and rescue right away because I knew you know she wasn't moving on her own she was in and out of responsiveness I I knew it was one of those things that we were going to need to be rescued that she wasn't going to be repelling down with me you know well were you afraid that she wasn't going to make it for sure yeah I mean I think one of the first things that came into my mind, because uh, she was kind of upside down in, like, in behind this, the big Texas flake, like, in the chimney back there. Um, one of the first things that came into my mind was a climber that had died uh, with a rock fall, um, and it had taken a while to get to them. And there was speculation that 
one of the things that had killed him was the fact that he had been hanging upside down and with a head injury. A lot of pressure can build up in the brain and bleeding upside down is something that, you know, is a life-threatening situation and probably needs to be dealt with pretty quickly and it took them a while to get to that person and he wasn't alive when they got to him. It was like, I need to make sure that she, you know, she's not bleeding in the, because the head injury was the first thing that I noticed. Like it was gushing blood and she was upside down. Um, and then I realized that her spine was injured and she couldn't move. Uh, so yeah, I was definitely afraid that we were gonna lose her especially because she wasn't fully responsive. Like, she was pretty incoherent for the first maybe five minutes and then kept repeatedly asking what had happened and where we were, what was going on, and those kind of things are like, you know, signs of a pretty severe head injury. So, um, yeah, when I called, I actually tried to call direct to search and rescue, but that number is like not always a it's it's an office so it's like there's not always somebody there to answer the phone and so I called Yosemite dispatch after that and they started asking me all these questions and I just like told them shut up and connect me to somebody with Yosar because I didn't want to delay and thank god my old supervisor was put on the phone right away and one of the best calmest human beings I could have spoken to in that moment just got things going and got the helicopter rescue happening really fast how Which, long did it take for the helicopter uh, to get you I think it was about three hours from when I first called because I looked at my phone later to see what time I had called dispatch um, from then to when she was flown away was about three hours, which is fast. Wow. Like, I don't think I've seen rescues happen that quickly uh, very often, or if ever. Um, and it was really fortunate that it did go that quickly. And that's what, you know, I keep going back to when people are like, you know, thank you for saving Quinn's life. And I'm like, you know, I don't know for sure what I did other than, like, Yosar got there fast. You know, I did everything in my ability to help them get to her and get there as quickly as they could. Um, the winds picked up that afternoon, like, within about a half hour or 45 minutes after she was flown out, and they may not have been able to do the short haul with the winds, what they were by the time. Because like, I rappelled down with one of the other rescuers after the helicopter flew her out and we were just getting blown all over the place up there uh, wow. so if that had been delayed it might have wound up making the rescue you know one of those ones that went until the evening and who knows what the outcome would have been if it had taken that long well thankfully it didn't well, you know. yeah from what I heard that the helicopter blades were pretty close to the wall was that uh, concerning to you um you know, I've I've been under helicopters in those situations a number of times, and it's always a little scary, like a slight breeze or a slight pilot error or anything going wrong, like a rope or 
something not happening just the right way is definitely really scary. Uh, all of my training that I did around helicopters was based around the like, oh yeah, it's not if, but when a helicopter is going to go down, like they're dangerous things to operate. And so, yeah, there's some fear there for sure. But uh, there's some really good pilots that are flying for the rescue team in Yosemite. They've been That's doing heard. this stuff a long time and and a good crew too. So if, you know, if this had happened anywhere else in the world, I don't know if the outcomes would have been as good. And, uh, you know, she's, she's pretty fortunate to, uh, to have taken a fall like that and have a rescue happen that quickly. Like it couldn't have happened anywhere, but in Yosemite Valley, I don't think. Yeah, no kidding. When she was, so she was upside down. Mm-hmm. Were you able to, were you able to pull her up? Yeah, I did. I kind of, I pulled her, just kind of her torso back up onto the right. It was a weird balance, precarious position, but I basically had her like kind of balanced on a rock and kind of balanced on me just so I could get my hands on her and like stop the bleeding from her head and get her upright and make sure she was breathing okay. Uh, Because at first that was what I was worried about. I didn't she didn't seem like she was breathing normally at first. So, I ha- yeah, I, I repositioned her a little bit and kind of had to sit under to hold her upright for a little while. And then it, with phone calls back and forth with the rescue rangers, they asked me if I could if I could move from where I was, if I could go fix a line down to where they were getting flown into, which is uh, the top of El Cap Tower, which is a pitch below where we were. So I had to move again after I repositioned her and luckily was able to get her into a pretty stable spot um, and go down and fix a line, which helped a lot with them getting there quicker because otherwise they would have had to lead that pitch and then haul their gear as it was they just had to ascend the line wow what what an incredible experience and, and just kudos to you for being able to keep it together like that um, a lot of people one they wouldn't have had all the years of experience that you've had with search and rescue like that and knowing what to do in a situation like that hadn't you not been there, it could have been a completely different outcome as well. So. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of people that are up there climbing on El Cap, like, you know, not all of them. There's definitely inexperienced people that go up there, but a lot of people, just because of the nature of big wall climbing, are proficient with technical abilities as well as, I think, where I learned how to be mentally calm in stressful situations was from climbing, like from doing scary runouts and pushing myself mentally all day has just gotten me this ability to keep my shit together, for lack of a better word, <laughs> you know, to yeah. have the mindset to be able to deal under stressful situations. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that is certainly an important thing. And, you know, after it all was over, I you know, got down to my car and fully broke down, but it, I wasn't going to allow that to happen until my feet were firmly planted on the ground, you know, like I had to 
deal. I had to get her off the mountain, and I had to get off the mountain, too. Uh, and it's just, it's a mentality shift. Do you have any desires to get back up on the nose and, and go for the record again? You know, I, the, the thought has crossed my mind. I definitely have pondered it a little bit. Um, I haven't even gone multi-pitching since the accident. I've been really psyched sport climbing and bouldering lately. <laughs> and I will. I, I'm uh, planning a trip to Patagonia, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be climbing big stuff again. I just haven't been super excited about it lately. Um, and the record, you know, maybe someday if I find the right partner for the job, but it's when you're tied in on a rope, speed climbing and simul climbing, it's way more of a team effort than any kind of other climbing that I've encountered. You know, you're always a team. Like, you've got a blare, and they're part of your operation when you're climbing, but it's different when you're moving fast and simul climbing. And the trust as well as the psych level that comes with having that right partner is something that's kind of hard to find and then also uh, there's not that many women out there that are doing that like I can't really think of anybody off the top of my head that would be a good person for trying to attempt the nose record with other than Libby who already has the record (laughs) but she's, she's a good friend of mine too so women uh, going up there and trying to break the record? I don't know. Um, It's hard to say if there's anybody out there that even has their sights set on it at all. Uh, Livy mentioned that she was kind of curious about how fast she could do it because when her and Mayan did it last, when they set the record at what it is right now, um, I think their goal had been to try to get it in four hours, and it's still at four forty-three, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so she mentioned that after this accident happened, that she had been contemplating talking to Mayan, like she was kind of getting psyched to go back up there again. And then after this happened, she's like, "Oh no, I don't have any desire to go up there right now." So <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, that narrows the field. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, you know, Jim and Brad are both friends of mine. And Jim was there on the ground because uh, he's on SAR. Um, he was there when I got down. And he was like, man, it really makes me contemplate the risk that we're taking up there and both of those guys said it like they thought about it that day that they went up there for the record they still did it um but brad also said it's the most dangerous thing he's ever done and that guy's done some dangerous stuff so yeah no kidding definitely points to what we were doing um not it's not safe and we knew that you know it's to, to say that this really changed, like I said, it's like naive to think that this kind of stuff wouldn't happen or to say that it really changes my mentality about stuff um, to see it actually happen because 
you know, we knew the risks we were taking. Like, that was those pitches where we didn't place any gear were the places that we weren't allowed to fall. And she fell, you know, and so that's like, you know, we talked about that a bunch. We talked about whether or not it was a risk that we were willing to take. And it, you know, well, would you, would you take that? Would you take that risk again, though? Um, where I'm sitting right now, I I would say no, um, because it doesn't seem worth it. I also that was Quinn's like her section. That was some harder climbing. Um, more of a risk that she was taking and so I don't think I ever really quite personally accepted that risk like I didn't want to do what she was doing um, but she was psyched to do it so well yeah look, looking back now is there any lessons that you feel like you can share with everyone uh, you, you shared a lot already but is there anything in particular that you look back on and go this and and feel like there's one lesson that I could share with everybody? There's like eight. One, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that night, uh, it was the day before that that we had all heard that Hayden and Inga had died. I don't know if you're familiar with that yep. whole story. For those not familiar with the tragic Shakespearean-like deaths of Hayden Kennedy and Inga Perkins, here's what I know. On October 7, 2017, 27-year-old alpinist and well-regarded sport climber with, with numerous 514s under his belt, Hayden Kennedy, along with his girlfriend, Inga Perkins, age 23, were caught in an avalanche on Imp Peak, just south of Bozeman, Montana. Hayden survived but his girlfriend, Inga, was buried and died. Even though both had beacons, Inga's was later found in her pack and turned off. Hence the reason why Hayden couldn't find her. There's a lesson for all of us here. Make sure your beacons are turned on and working. Hayden was so distraught afterwards and unable to cope with the loss of his partner in life, he took his own life the following day. Now, as you can imagine, this news had a devastating effect on many in the climbing community, especially with Josie and Quinn. Sad story. Super sad. And yeah. so that night I was awake and having bad dreams. Like I didn't sleep very well. And I woke up in the morning and told Quinn, I was like, hey, I don't want to start as early as we planned. I need to get more sleep. So I went back to sleep and slept another couple hours. Um, and then I just still, like, I felt uneasy about it. There was, like, a bad feeling. And I dismissed it as being, like, you know, our friends had just died because of bad stuff happening in the mountains and, like, people die climbing and shit we're doing is dangerous. And I, I dismissed it as just being this remnants of it being sad. Uh but maybe I should have listened to my intuition. And Quinn actually later also said that, you know, she was just not 
fully with it, like she was distracted. Um, and she even said on that pitch that she was kind of distracted and that Hayden had popped into her head, um, like shortly before she fell. And, you know, those little subconscious things, whether I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that it was like a premonition, but that, you know, our headspace wasn't right. And it's just something to pay attention to, I think. Absolutely. I'm, for me, I think that those little feelings that you get, those deja vu type experience, you know, experiences that you get, it's like a little voice. You've got to pay attention because it's the only way that, call it whatever you want, the universe communicating with you. Yeah. Um, and every time I haven't listened to that, something bad has happened. Something bad happens, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's hard because... And I actually was talking to both Libby and Quinn about this because Libby showed up and was hanging out in the hospital with us. The three of us spent a lot of time together in the hospital with while Quinn was in the hospital in Modesto. Um, and we talked about it a bunch. And I just remember us saying, you know, if every time we get nervous or have a bad feeling about something we decide not to do it we probably would never leave the house <laughs> it's all scary you know but there's so true. there's some way that you have to assess the difference between some like actual bad deep wrong feeling and just pregame nerves and there is a difference it's just hard in the moment to be aware of it I would say that's the big that's the big lesson to learn right there. Yeah. Listen to your listen to your intuition. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then be prepared to deal with emergencies when they do happen. You know, I can't I can't sell short what training does to help people be able to respond to emergency situations. So. So true. Can they um, get a hold of you and take classes with you if they want to learn? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, I teach wilderness medicine courses with Knowles and rescue courses as well through them, and I do, like, personal rescue trainings as well. Um, So, yeah, I love teaching that stuff. It's an important thing for people to be skilled at when they're going out there and Risky situations. Absolutely. Oh, and, and and lastly, how can our climbing community support Quinn's recovery efforts? Is there? I know there's a website out there. Um, we can promote that. Is there anything else that the community can do? You know, helping out with those funds is amazing, and then I think just sharing love and you know reaching out to her when she's in rehab but she just appreciates hearing from people and hearing love and then I think just continuing to be inspired you know I don't think she wants people to stop doing the things that they love just because it's dangerous so keep getting after it and uh, she loves doing handstands so there's been people doing handstands and social media posts (laughs) for Quinn (laughs) right on (laughs) (laughs) That's been the campaign. Hands, hands down for Quinn. 
hand sanitizer is great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, thank you, Josie. I really, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, on behalf of the climbing community, um, thank you for being there at a moment where your climbing partner needed you like that. It's it's so cool to hear. Yeah, well, I, I hope that anybody in that situation would have done what I did, you know. Um, and it's sad that it happened, but we're no. glad she's still here. Speaking of which, I'm happy to report that Quinn Brett, who was transferred to Craig Hospital in Denver, stood for the very first time to their most horrific fall. Granted, she's wearing leg braces, but it's given all of us in the climbing community hope this will eventually lead to Quinn taking her first step. Whether that will happen is anyone's guess, but as you'll hear in Quinn's own words, she's had plenty of time to reflect. <laughs> yeah, with the help of braces and such, but still. Still? No kidding. Um, what would that feel like? Uh, it feels interesting. It's like, uh, I don't know, like I, I'm a different stance because of the way my my what muscles are firing or not firing, but um, yeah, it feels nice to be standing. It's good for morale. <laughs> are you able to Are you able to uh, take a step yet, or is it just being able to stand um, right now? They don't want me to do that yet. I guess for some reason, like they want me to be a little further along, like five months or so after my injury before I start walking. But it's not. Like the legs, the knees are locked out because I can't, I don't have any quads at the moment also. So like I could just be walking with hip flexors essentially. Kind of like stiff legging. <laughs> yeah. But, but we'll see. I'm pretty newbie at this. I'm as impatient as I am. I'm, I have to keep reminding myself that I'm a, I'm a newbie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have the greatest spirit. You really do. Were you concerned that this day would never come? Uh, I mean, I don't know if that was a concern, but it's just like, just what, yeah, I guess what it looks like. You know, to me, it's still not like doing the things that I was doing. Tell, tell us about your rehab and physical therapy. Yeah. I'm kind of trying to just do the gamut, trying to do as much, pretty much like, from reading what I can, like research-wise, like try to do as much electrical therapy and as much movement as possible. What kind of electrical therapy? Tell us about that. Just electrical stimulation, like they put little pads on the my body and it stimulates the muscles, but I'm... I'm a little confused with the science behind it because apparently injuries that are as low as mine, like lower thoracic and lumbar, have a harder time or sometimes don't respond to electrical stimulation, which I'm not, I don't understand the science behind that, but um, I, my, some, so like some muscles of mine respond and some of them don't, like my quads don't respond, but my calves and my hamstrings and my glutes do respond, so those are good things. Which yeah, helps, like, helps like get those muscles firing and build a little muscle. Uh, I mean, minorly, but just at least doing something for the muscles, stimulating them so they're not just lying dormant this whole entire time. Uh, yeah, just like if there's hope to 
stand or do anything again. At least I'll have some kind of muscle mass, you know? Well, now that a few months have passed, are, are you remembering anything about that day? Um, I mean, I have a memory. I, it's not like I lost any, I guess, memory about... The only thing I don't have a memory is of, like, hitting the rock, which is a good thing. <laughs> but I remember the whole climbing day and uh, pretty much the moments leading up to it, I think. That's yeah. good. Uh, you know, because when I was talking to Josie, uh conversation she had the night before with you about uh, Hayden and Inga's tragic death. Yeah. And how, she, and how she couldn't sleep well and was having bad dreams and she woke up with a bad feeling but dismissed it. Uh, it's just a remnant of the feelings of that death. I was wondering if you, how that affected you, because you said that um, those thoughts were coming up to you as well as you were climbing. Uh, yeah, and even before. I mean, both, like, I had a text to the person I was dating at the time, um, right before Josie and I took off for climbing, that I just texted him something like, I'm having a really hard time with this Hayden thing. Josie and I don't know what we're doing today. We're a little behind schedule. We were supposed to get up early, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, when I was climbing, definitely thoughts of Hayden, particularly, like, while I was climbing the boot slate right before I fell, like, thoughts of Hayden came across my brain. Um, he was a friend of mine, but he had also, like, taken a big whipper off the nose a few years ago on the pancake flake, and we hung out in the meadow afterwards, and I silked with him down in the river as he, I don't know, and we just talked through, like, what that experience was like for him, and so uh, for him to just flash in my brain a few minutes or seconds before I fell was pretty interesting. Yeah, no kidding. Huh. What, what, what do you think happened? Do you remember what happened? It was my falling? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know exactly, but I do remember. I mean, I remember, I'm pretty sure I took out a, I have two daisies and I was attached to a ultralight red camelot on my left side. And my right side, I don't think was attached to anything. I think it was just dangling. And then I'm pretty sure I removed the red Camelot and I thought, I think I thought I shouldn't do that. Uh, but now, I don't know, sometimes when I think back on the memory, maybe I was already had the feeling of falling at that point, so I said I shouldn't have done that. Um, I'm not really sure, but I think I, I think I removed it and I was reaching like my left hand around and my right hip for another Camelot because my right hand was jammed in and I must have either slipped or or maybe I put the next, like, a gold Camelot in, which I was reaching for, and maybe it was not sufficient, which would be kind of weird, but maybe I placed it and weighted it, and it popped out. I don't know. I'm not really sure. I tried to ask Josie if there was, like, what gear was attached to my daisy, but nobody really knows. I know the red Camelot was still attached to the daisy, but I was trying to figure out if there was another a, a gold Camelot attached to the right daisy or not, and we don't know. That never got answered. You were going for the record, weren't you not? No. Not really? Not just, just Just we running another lap? Yeah, we were just running another lap. Like, I had a bit of, like, for the last three or four years, I've been really wanting to do try the triple in the valley, which is climbing El Cap, Half Dome, and walk-ins in, in 24 hours. And I had asked a couple partners 
guys and girls and no one people sometimes people were sort of psyched and nobody was really ever psyched and Josie finally was like after doing the seven and seven last year she was like yeah I think I don't know I think it just crossed her brain that maybe it was a possibility or it was worth trying at least and so essentially we just needed to get some laps on all three mountains and get them kind of dwindled down to certain times like we needed to get the nose under six hours uh, and then we would be happy, and we would get walk-ins under six hours, and we'd be happy. And it was, like, all very doable. So we were mm-hmm. just trying to, like, dwindle it down a little bit further. Well, <clears throat> you know, God willing, maybe you'll get that chance again. <laughs> you know. Well, maybe. You never or know. Sm- you never know. You know, I, I've long been a believer that uh, some of our greatest gifts come to us and we pay the highest price for some of these gifts. And I was just wondering, you know, it may be too short yet, but uh, has there been a silver lining yet that you can see? Something that you've learned that you can share with everybody? Um, I don't know. It's something that I knew before this accident, but I think we all get lost in our own thoughts. Uh, too easily or lost in our own egos and I feel like a little bit like this this adventure like yes I'd been wanting to do the triple for a really long time but it was kind of like I don't know I feel like I'd lost the steam for it a little bit like my heart was more looking uh not to be so mellow or done with climbing but just kind of like ready for a new adventure and so I think through this injury, this has reminded me that, like, sometimes we can, like, as amazing as it is to be so focused, sometimes it's uh, a good a good point to look around and take a deep breath and really think about our motivations for certain activities or goals. Because I think, like, I had a little bit of, uh, I don't know, like external push and it wasn't necessarily my willingness to go up there I felt like externally I needed to achieve or I needed to uh, succeed or fulfill other people's dreams and sometimes that's not the best sometimes we need to remember what we're doing things for and why for ourselves well said well said that that is actually I think we should leave it right there that is beautiful um (laughs) Thank, thank you, Quinn. Um, I really appreciate this conversation, and uh, our hearts and prayers go out to you. We truly hope and pray that we see you out climbing again and enjoying <laughs> life as you uh, have always enjoyed. Yeah, I hope so, too. <laughs> and take care of yourself, okay? All right. Thank you for connecting with me. Likewise. Big hug. Take care. Okay. Thanks. I don't know about you, but my heart really goes out to Quinn. I can only imagine what it's like to be in her shoes at this moment, wondering if she'll ever get to stand on top of Long's Peak again, amongst other things that we all take for granted. It takes tremendous amount of courage to face the challenges both physically and mentally when the odds are stacked so heavily against you. I'm absolutely convinced If Quinn does get to walk again, it will be because everyone around her, and herself included, believes in miracles. If I could offer some advice, because I've been around long enough to see the writing on the wall, 
Couldn't we collectively put our minds together and devise some sort of safety mechanism? Like a collapsible pop-out safety net that could catch a climber in a no-fall zone? I'm just saying. Circus Delay has safety nets, but yet we're still blown away by their incredible trampeze acts. It doesn't take anything away. In my opinion, and take it for what it's worth, if the race up the Noseville cap has any hopes of flourishing, the climbing community needs to address this today, not tomorrow when someone gets killed. <laughs> Next time it could be a dude. We all know they're gunning to break the two hour bear. And that means there's a lot of potential for something to go horribly wrong. And when and if that should ever happen, because I'm seriously praying it doesn't, speed climbing up the nose as we know it will be permanently shut down. Why do you think base jumping is illegal in the valley? Same reason, right? So let's put our creative minds together and make Quinn's accident into something that can be remembered forever as a reminder that we can do better. Just look what Norface and other companies did for backcountry inflatable avalanche packs. And what companies did for surfing fests when dropping in on a massively big wave like at Mavericks. And whoever comes up with this device, maybe it's a collection of companies. Couldn't they just donate a percentage of the profits towards Quinn's recovery efforts? Not only would we have taken a negative situation and made it into a positive, we might have actually saved the race itself. Just a thought. But as we all know, what we think about, we bring about. This is Dan Goodwin with True Black TV, your entertainment source for extreme sports.